Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. My guest today is the head of consulting services in an international organization. He has spent 25 years in the management consulting industry and has worked in a number of the big five audit firms with directorships in some. A transformation and change leader, he heads up the strategy and operations transformation practice today. He's all about change and the management of it. Perfect for the times we are living in. But before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. We believe in Africa and its future. We develop capabilities and design great systems by leveraging our global alliances and partnerships. Philips Consulting, a proudly Pan-African consulting firm, headquarters in Nigeria. It is a leading provider of business and management consulting services digital technology solutions and outsourcing services. We have been shaping organization change and people transformation for more than 27 years. Whether you're an international corporation or a small startup, our agile approach to problem solving and strategic planning will help you scale new heights and shape change. Find out more, speak to an advisor, get in touch at philipsconsulting.net. Let's Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Francis Buami is a senior partner and currently leads the consulting, strategy and operations transformation practice of Philips Consulting. His clients are predominantly based in the various countries around the African continent, though Francis himself is based in Nigeria. As mentioned, he has worked in many blue chip consulting firms to include EMY, Capgemini, KPMG, to name a few. His clients rely on him to help them build and enhance a leading position in the emerging markets, arming them with tools and techniques that allow them to compete on the global stage. Extensive experience in multiple industries across Europe, America and Africa, Francis has worked across a wide range of sectors to include, but not limited to, banking, financial services, insurance, oil and gas, telecoms and central government. He's a strategic thinker and an accomplished person with broad management consulting and leadership experience. Excellent interpersonal and communication skills, Francis infinitely commands the attention of his juniors and peers. On a personal level, I have known Francis through our time in KPMG, and I have nothing but positivity and positive energy from him. He's a consummate professional, and yet such enjoyable company. And I, for one, always have a smile on my face when I see or hear from him. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Francis to his talk. Delighted to have you here today, Francis. Brilliant, Elena, and thank you very much. Uh, it's an opportunity to always uh, engage with you. Um, so yes, a lot of fun memories. Thank you. Yes, it's, it's, always, it's always wonderful to hear from you. So um, I'm really looking forward to some of your responses to the, the questions today. Um, please, listeners, if you'd like to hear more conversations like this, um, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and I will endeavor to meet your expectations. So let's begin. Okay, I've got a big question. Um, for you to start this conversation. It's about digital revolution and the African continent. Um, Is there an opportunity for the African continent with this new drive across the globe for digitalization, the creation of digital solutions, to effectively leapfrog some of the technological evolutions and be at the forefront and cutting edge of technology? If you think of some of the, the old legacy systems of the West, many of the companies in the African continent have not invested heavily in this space They can go greenfield and implement these new technologies without the headache of transferring or transforming from a legacy base, which we know from the past, our past experience, is very complicated and not to mention costly. So my question to you is, do you see an opportunity here for African companies in this time with these technologies to have a competitive edge over some of the more established counterparts in the West? What say you, Francis? Um, it's a very good question, Elaine, and, and it's quite interesting that in terms of um, how Africa has been transforming, you know, over the recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, Africa didn't have much legacy systems compared to the West. Mm-hmm. So when sort of mobile technology kicked in, they were sort of able to adopt without having to reinvent the wheel. Um, so as a result of that, you know, the mobile penetration or you know, technological penetration is it's, it's taking leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite interesting that, you know, when I think of some of, 
you know, the technological innovations happening in Africa, uh, it sort of blows my mind and things I wasn't seeing here uh, because they had nothing to, so no legacy to deal with. Mm -hmm. And it was more of sort of uh, um, taking on board uh, the latest technology and, and which seems to work. So there's a lot of mobile penetration in, in Africa and there was quite a huge number compared to sort of most uh, you know, Western countries. But obviously, price points are always a challenge, but there's certainly significant penetration across the African region. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so they are taking up the challenges slowly, so to speak. They, they are. And I think, the, I think it's more than slowly. They are taking it in leaps and bounds. Um, mm -hmm. you know, a sort of recent example was, you know, Paystack which is sort of looking at payments. Uh, a lot of the, the, you know, the telecom companies mm -hmm. are looking at mobile money using what we call mobile wallets to transact. Mm -hmm. And it's quite interesting because, you know, I still have to use, um, you know, when those things were taken off, uh, there was still sort of slow adoption here. Uh, but they had, you know, Africans had no option but to adopt those things because it made, you know, transaction easily. So Paystar recently was acquired by Stripe for around you know 200 million us dollars and it's a mm -hmm. you know a, a payment system developed by nigerians in nigerians but setting making a lot of waves um so it's quite interesting like you know an international company like stripe worth over 36 billion yeah. is investing in in those sort of technology developments in africa and this you know you know what paystack did is they developed it there as part of you know enabling transactions and payments between um traders and, 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 and businesses. And, and that is, you know, certainly gain international attention um, just to show, you know, the way that Africans are looking to, to develop themselves. I mean, payments is one big challenge that was hurting Africans in terms of trade uh, because it was all cash driven um, approach. But now the adoption of these payment systems has, has created a lot of, you know, um, startups. Um, and driving, you know, the financial inclusion across Africa, particularly in, in Nigeria. Um, and it's now facilitating the ability to trade with anybody. Um, all I need is a PIN and a code and a transaction. And, and so we're moving money digitally now. Um, so that is happening. And it's, it's sort of a way of, of um, you know, when they talk about financial inclusion, that anybody in the remotest part of Africa can now trade. Yeah. with the next person. Um, another important thing is obviously the Afri African um, continental free trade is kicking in, which okay. means there's going to be a borderless system between, you know, African countries in terms of yeah. trade. So how do I trade? And you know, African countries have multiple currencies in terms of uh, the various countries. Uh, but now how are we going to trade with this opportunity, you know, for me to be able to move goods from Nigeria to the furthest part of East mm -hmm. Africa? or, you know, the northest part of Africa. And, you know, uh, we were used to trading in the international currencies, sort of the USDs, which is the predominantly one, or euros, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, typically the currencies that we have to trade with, even though we were neighbors, because mm -hmm. our currencies were not recognized between countries. So, you know, I still have to convert to foreign currency to pay my neighbor when we're doing sort of cross-border trade. But now with these payment with technology, I can now trade effectively without diluting the value of my currency um, or my trade. So, yeah, so there's clearly a huge adoption of technology, which is helping the African continent. And with the advent of this sort of, um, you know, Africa continental free trade, um, you know, in excess of getting an you know, opportunity to trade with about 1.3 billion people mm. in 55 countries, across Africa is a significant step, but it's going to need the, you know, digitization and technology to drive these things. So it's, it's exciting times and encouraging times as well. Yes, when you think about it, sort of 1 point what, billion um, potential customers, but of course exactly. it's going to be a very exciting time for you. Uh, let's move on, let's move on. Uh, I want to cover briefly COVID, because, you know, we, we're still in that space, so we have to talk about that. Um, can you briefly give my, my listeners an insight into some of the projects and challenges you are working through in this pandemic? It's been an absolutely mad year. It's near the end, as in the year that is, and I'd just like um, for you to tell us how your business and 
has been and which sectors you're working in and a summary of some of the challenges ahead. Yes, I must admit, you know, COVID-19 took everybody by, probably by surprise in terms of the speed and, and impact. And that certainly, you know, from any business point of view, has significant challenges. You know, at one point in time, uh, we were sort of, you know, motoring down the, 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 the highway. Mm -hmm. And then sadly, and I remember in Nigeria, within a couple of days, uh, we were told for lockdown. You know, I think I actually planning mm -hmm. to board a flight somewhere. And literally, we had to cancel things. So um, it certainly had a significant impact initially. And, uh, and I think that the government was very responsible in, in acting very quickly. Um, you know, most people probably realize that during the Ebola situations, a lot of African countries had to go through, you know, uh, what we call the, those scenarios in terms of planning mm. and executing into, you know, challenges like that. So there was a lot of lessons learned, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the National Disease Control Centers had a blueprint in terms of engaging and people in mass. So, um, yes, the challenge we had is they were able to execute their protocols, but the challenge we had as businesses that we had to sort of start thinking very quickly mm -hmm. in relation to our ability to um, arrest the situation because we had no option but to send people home and 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 it was for lockdown and trying to you know figure out how ways people could work so depending on your industry type whether it was service or product you were challenged with what you had to do but as good old consultants what we tried to do was kickstart what we call our reimagination approach to doing business with our clients mm -hmm. and we quickly got on the front foot and and got into the advisory mode with our clients in relation to what they could start doing yeah you know, because a lot of them probably were not prepared for the technological aspects that they needed to have for people to work remotely mm. because we were all sort of used to going to work going to a location um and yes we got to work and everything you know our, our technology and everything worked but now we have to sort of work remotely and obviously the infrastructure in places like nigeria are still under development um, so there was quite a lot of challenges, but the good thing coming back to the, the mobile technology that there's a huge penetration of that. So that helped and our ability to engage and quickly adopt the technology such as Zoom, Teams and start mm -hmm. working. Mm -hmm. Yes. But, yes. You know, there was still that cultural and mindset shift that had to happen because people were used to waking up in the morning, getting ready and going to a location, mm. going to office. Um, and that was the protocol. So, you know, where were the levers around responsibility, people working from home, being responsible and doing what they were supposed to do and when they were supposed to do it. So all these ways of working, uh, we quickly had to help our clients, you know, understand that and also take them through conversation around how are you going to sort of recover? How are you going to reboot? How are you going to, because we didn't know when this thing was going to start and end, but then but business must continue. So, so reinvent or reimagining a, in a business where some of the yeah. advisory things we did to help our clients and also ourselves as a consultant business, because we're thought to be at the forefront of thought leadership and, and, and you know, what works well. And so we had to swallow our pills quickly to make our consultants, because we couldn't go to client sites, uh, we had to work from them. So what sort of projects could we do remotely and which projects that we had to sort of come to an arrangement and agreement with our clients. And those were some of the things we did immediately, engaging our clients and having conversations. Um, projects that required physical presence, we had to come to some agreement with our clients as to how we were going to do it. Um, so yes, there was a bit of a reset uh, in relation to the way we work, uh, mm -hmm. but we quickly went into adoption mode in relation to the technologies that we could use to service our clients. And also we had to ramp up our advice to our clients because most of them didn't even know what to do when it came to you know um uh, how we're going to engage our people are they going to mm -hmm. be responsible mm -hmm. to do what they were supposed to do and when um, and how do we work as a team remotely mm -hmm. you know some of the interesting things we were saying to our, our clients is you know we've got used to we were talking about borderless offices we've got used to going to work. But what we're saying is, you know, it's not about going to work. Work is what we do. And, and irrespective of where we do it, 
And so long as we're doing what, uh, then we're achieving an outcome. You know, so we were having conversations in terms of blended working, you know, real versus virtual. Um, and then encouraging clients to invest in the ability to work virtually. Because we think this, what COVID-19 has done has proved a lot of things. A lot of organizations we're working with were thinking of this work-life balance. And, you know, dipped their toes in it and tried, you know, Friday mm -hmm. off or tried a combination of things. Um, part of working with people and, and getting, um, you know, your, your employees engaged but not necessarily a full commitment to work-life yes, balance. Yes, yes, yes. So what this proved is we were all forced to adopt that. And what we've realized that actually it does work. People are actually responsible. Um, productivity, yeah, we had challenges with that, but I think once we got over the headaches and the technology, we realized productivity actually it's, it's, it's gone higher. And now we're now looking at home work-life balance because people don't know when to sometimes clock out at home yes. Uh, yes. and it's a seamless way so you know from work life balance we're not talking home work life balance yeah. um and so it's been interesting times yes i, I think so and I, and, I, and I like the fact that you use this sort of the dipping of the toe analogy because i've always used that and i always sort of imagined it you know dipping your toes in the water and seeing if you working at home or even trying digitalization um is fine but what covid did was it was like a, an individual virtually pushed you right into the deep end and said swim <laughs> and that way you had to survive you had no chance you had no time to to work at how i'm going to go through this you just have to swim as uh, you have to get into survival mode and um you also mentioned um ebola and for want of a better word it was it was almost like the dry run um of what was to come which was covid19 we're now entering into the the second wave of it um so in your business, um, have you learned anything from the first wave that can be implemented in the second wave? Or have you learned more from the, the, the Ebola situation that could be implemented here that, that we in the West did not sort of endure? So it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, COVID, let's say COVID-1, we, we learned a lot of things. I mean, it was quite interesting, you know, when Nigeria put together its presidential task force, which was similar to the briefings Boris gives us on, on, on a regular basis with, with, with the health officials. Um, so they were quick to mark. And then what we started doing is also looking at local sustainability. So I remember that a lot of factories sort of retooled re or redeployed themselves to start producing local masks. Because clearly the challenge became globally in terms of sourcing those PPEs and products uh, to support the healthcare industry, uh, industry. So, you know, so things like Nigeria quickly put together what they call their presidential task force, which was made up of the different ministries and agencies, you know, right from security to um, healthcare um, as part of addressing the situation. So a lot of some of the initiatives they took was local sustainability you know, in terms of PPE. Um, and you know factories retooling themselves to produce say mass locally, and then compliance was a critical thing. So, so COVID nineteen or call it COVID one, mm -hmm. really got everybody thinking. But I think some of the springboards they had is the Ebola situation was probably similar to the impacts uh, that COVID nineteen had in terms of people affecting people mm -hmm. and isolating people and doing all the necessary things to, you know, to keep safety and health. So some of the interventions they had during the COVID-19 period were sort of reactivated. Yeah, you know, so they were part of the process of, of trying to sort of contain this situation. But obviously, if you remember when it started, a lot of the pundits and analysts were saying it was going to be a bloodbath in Africa <laughs> because we didn't have some of the facilities and interventions that the West had. And strange enough, when you look at the numbers um, across Africa, it is actually contained compared to the number of deaths here. People say the data is not there, but I think this, you know, the, the data is there. Um, but what we realized is people you know, started going into the responsible nature of things that believe in this COVID-19 thing and actually respecting the rules and interventions that the government have put in place. 
and Sally was very challenging. Obviously, the per capita capital income is, is very low compared to the West. People typically have to go out to earn a living. Uh, and then we're faced with this challenge. But I think the ability to, to contain the virus compared to what all the analysts were saying yeah, yeah. has been, you know, you know, something to shout about it and so probably lessons to learn. To learn. And it's interesting now you're getting people reversing the statements in the West. Maybe because Africa has had a lot of these challenges, they're probably well prepared and well equipped to deal with, you know, incidents like that. But whatever it is, um, we were able to contain it and we respected all the necessary things that the government put together. So COVID-19 thought a lot of things, but I think we have springboards for those previous things I mentioned, such as Ebola. Mm -hmm. So come the next wave, which we are talking about in the West now, I think they are better prepared uh, in terms of dealing with it. Obviously, nobody's taking it for granted. All the necessary task force that we're putting in place are still active. Um, a lot of those sort of uh, emergency hospitals and wards that were put up actually had to be descaled back because they weren't getting enough patients to fill them up. Mm. Um, and you know, when you try and trace back the value chain, you realize the interventions were happening. Mm. And it was quite interesting because yeah, I remember I had to sort of take a, a local flight and the Ministry of Health was at the airport. Your temperature was being taken. And um, if obviously it was above the, the right number, you were not allowed to enter the airport. And all the retail outlets were doing exactly the same thing. Um, they even had, you know, disinfection at the entry, you know, bases to wash your hands. And this was the local supermarket. Um, so all those interventions were quickly put in place to arrest the situation, obviously help with the prevention and, and the spread. So we learned that, that there's a lot of reimagination when you bring that in business context, that how we were sort of working with our clients was reimagine how they do their work and how they service the, the, the customers. So a lot of, um, you know, equivalent of the delivery rules kicked yeah. in, logistics became an important thing. Mm -hmm. So we're speaking to our clients in that sort of industry, how they can be more effective um, and certainly mobile technology was allowing things so people can now order things on their phones and get it delivered. And that industry picked up quickly in terms of logistics and, and supply chain. Um, so, you know, we were actively advising our clients on how to reimagine a lot of automation. We're talking about automation with them. So I think, you know, back to your question, uh, uh, lessons we learned. Lessons we learned was said to our clients is the ability to be agile and pivot your business operations or your strategies because what we realized that we cannot rely on the old paradigm or what we said we were going to do and uh, we had to reimagine and reinvent very quickly as part of making sure that we don't collapse mm -hmm. uh, first of all as businesses and yes. um, uh, redesigning products we take to market or services and to stay relevant so i think what we've done is we've absorbed the shocks we are now better informed. So I think we're, we're more comfortable with the wave too, yes. that we have the right interventions. And our clients, uh, as we work with them through, say, COVID-1, uh, COVID mm -hmm. they now have a better understanding of some of the things that they have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing is that people have sort of um, um, psychologically also prepared themselves, which is an important thing. We always forget the bit about the people element that there was a lot of psychological shift uh, in people in relation to ways of working. What does work actually mean? Even deciding what your priorities are, because obviously the deaths were frightening, mm -hmm. deciding what priorities were in relation to is it work or is it life? Um, and these are some of the things we were talking with our clients in terms of the reboot process, that you know, it's important that we carry people along through this journey and these challenges. And so some of the services we're taking to our clients, including even virtual training and learning, because people still want to be part of a community. So we launch a lot of online services, especially when it comes to training, people development, capacity development, mm -hmm. where some of the things we do, and funny enough, is becoming the norm now in terms of compared to classroom-based learning. And we also kick-started a lot of corporate social responsibilities, things such as giving some of the schools access to some of our online training material uh, as part of helping, you know, the social interventions. 
So I think, you know, at this point we're, we're you know, we've, um, we understand the values we have to take to market. We're prepared with this COVID-19 or the next wave of it. Um, and, and a lot of the businesses we're working now have, for those who had extended supply chains, have now got a better understanding of what they have to do to stay in business, which is sort of reimagining the supply chain process and bringing in a lot of automation. And uh, we were used to just in time, but we're realizing that that has this sort of impacts as well. I think it's interesting that um, you said that the, the Nigerian response has been a lot better and a lot swifter than expectations, um, which it's really reminded me of the, the, the parallel with um, I think South Korea and the SARS outbreak and their responses to that and to COVID was much better than how the responses were in the West. So it's interesting to see how you put plans in place, lessons were learned from those various outbreaks in the, the different continent prior to all of this. Um, let's move on. As mentioned in the, the introduction, you are responsible for strategy and change programs. Um, you also have other skills and service lines expertise, and one of them um, is pre and post merger integration. Organizations are expediting their digital readiness and transformation programs, as, as you know, we briefly talked about. Do you see M&A being uh, a part of the process in order to achieve this? It, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's been going since they dot. And, you know, what the COVID you know, situation, COVID-19 situation actually introduced was it actually exposed a lot of flaws in certain businesses as well um, in relation to their capacity to withstand the, the shocks and the challenges. And some of the things we, we started seeing uh, is consolidation where businesses are now looking at their various strengths and weaknesses. Um, and, you know, rather unfortunately or fortunately, um, it's, it's actually created a platform for companies to match. And we've seen a lot of that. I mean, initially it used to be a lot in, in, in sort of the financial sector, but what we're seeing now is this happening across all businesses because what they are seeing is, you know, the strengths they have and the weaknesses. And understanding that sometimes collaboration is probably better than going it alone. So there's a lot of activity that is happening where organizations are approaching us from a, a transaction advisory point of view to mm -hmm. say, look, we do have, um, uh, we don't have the necessary capabilities. Some of the challenges for, uh, for a lot of the manufacturing industries in Nigeria is access to forex. Because a lot of foreign mater uh, uh, raw materials have to be imported. Huge dependency on forex. And as a result of this, some of the interventions the central bank put in place was forex, you know, uh, regulation mm -hmm. or management, because clearly the what the, the country had to do was focus on, on making sure that the health service was well, was well resourced. So um, the challenge about forex became a problem, and a lot of these organized companies realized that well, we can actually collaborate in our supply chain. Um, I don't have to do it all, and and so if there are sort of other components in the supply chain that I can get from other institutions, then I might as well. But then he also encouraged the point that, well, we're all in the same business. You know, we could use economies of scale when it comes to our spend or our procurement budget. Mm -hmm. So why don't we come together? So it's actually introduced, you know, this aspect that I don't have to be an island. I can actually work. And we're seeing companies looking to come together to take advantage of um, uh, of this. Yeah, yeah. So the whole company has introduced a whole new dynamics in terms of business, where you know it's more healthy competition and how do we make sure we get together? Mm. And interesting, because I, I want to sort of talk about um, skill upgrades, not so much with your, your clients, but internally. So um, let, me, let me move on to this. And, and we're staying with digitalization and all things digital. Um, with the big drive for digital transformation everywhere, what has digitalization done with your tried and tested traditional business models and methodologies? What are the skill upgrades you're seeing as a, a necessary requirement, especially for those of us um, that are or were in sort of traditional IT consulting space, examples with the supply chain, procurement, etc. How has the traditional skills and delivery changed? It would be very interesting to see and understand how, for example, uh, the KPMG World Class IT maturity model of the late 90s and the early 2000s 
has morphed in this digital age. What is the focus? Where is the attention in terms of consulting delivery in this space? Please, please, um, Francis, use your own examples or preferred service line um, to elaborate your examples of what has to be relearned or what have to be changed or what skill upgrades are required within the consulting practice. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, um, in this sort of recent times, you know, technology seems to sort of hog you know, all the headlines and it's all about, you know, technology these days. But, you know, for me, there's still an interesting part, which is the, the people bit, you know. So when we talk about your question about, you know, what skills, what we train, and I mean, we hear a lot of things, you know, machine learning, AI, mm. you, you know, you've got to, we hear about robotics, you know, process automation and all heap of things. But, you know, some of the things I realize is for, for these things to work, there's always the, the people element. It's interesting that, you know, if it sort of even cast back to our early days in, in consulting, there was always that idea, people process technology, people process technology is quite interesting because those triage of things, have, I don't think have changed with the advent of, you know, all the latest technology that we think about, there's still the people element of it. So when you mention supply chain, you know, clearly some of the things that are happening, you know, from those core skills we have is, you know, people are talking automation everywhere, you know, process automation here, procurement automation. And these are some of the things that, you know, if you say about retraining or retooling yourself, well, I say it's understanding how those things work. But the core fundamentals as a consultant, I think is very important because what I've always said is clients buy people. And no matter what we do, they buy people. Now, you know, sometimes in the early days, we had a lot of generalist consultants who had general skills and being able to go and listen with a good old two years and do something. Um, but because clients are a bit vertical now, there's, you know, the general skills can take you so far, but the vertical skills are also very important when it comes to being able to speak the client's language and actually help them. So for me, um, you know, we've always said clients, you know, buy people. And there's also the important bit of being a trusted advisor. And, um, you know, I always said to my consultants, you know, we're not smarter than our clients. They probably know more than we do. But sometimes they need somebody to challenge their thinking without fear or favor. And that's what good consultants do. Now, it's also important that we are abreast with where the technological challenges, you know, to, you know, to talk about digitization. It's important. We've been doing a lot of work, you know, in the fintech space with our banking clients as well. And it's the speed of transaction that you're looking for because the customers continue to ask for more. I remember they used to do end of day balance and used to take hours. And now they're doing it in minutes because of digitization, because the clients want to know today so they can invest tomorrow. But the combination of the conversation we're having in terms of even all that, you know, the big transformation work around fintech and digitization was always down to people. You know, do my people understand what to do? You know, can they adopt the technologies we're bringing in? Will they still be able to communicate with our customers or our clients? So for me, you know, when they talk about all these things, and I mean, it's great. There are people who want to specialize in these, you know, intelligent things, AI and artificial engine, they are good. Um, but I think there's still an important part for the core consulting skills that we always bring. And the challenges, and I've seen clients try and, 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 and go ahead with transformation projects and they failed miserably. And it wasn't because of the introduction of the new technology or anything. It's just the people refused to adopt it. Uh, we've always said the success of anything is the people adopting and using it. Yes, it's important with all these new technologies because what is doing is it helping us um, and to do things quicker. So if you look at the recent vaccines that they had to sort of develop and, and, and roll out in, in real time, there's probably a lot of AI that sat behind, you know, the analysis to allow them to process these things very quickly. We know that typically, you know, dreaming of vaccine and brain of market takes years. Mm. But it's amazing the sort of things that they've managed to do. And clearly we know that, um, you know, behind the scenes, they probably use a lot of AI processes and to analyze data. And I think those are some of the, the key things, which when it comes to understanding, um, you know, the next wave of skills that we want, we always say data, I mean, it is the new gold. And, you know, I think that I is going around for a while. 
and it's been you know new goal but what does it actually mean what can we do with that and and how do we look at our clients data and help them to make insightful decisions from them so you know volumes of data they have it still takes a good consultant to analyze and process that and actually to help them define what it is so you know there's no project that we worked on that hasn't got a huge change element on so even if I look at even the supply chain where we're helping clients to sort of reimagine how their supply chain processes work, it's quite interesting that you know we still have to go through a lot of people transformation to make it work. I mean, one good example I was thinking about is you know I think about four years ago Tesco did a doomsday scenario analysis. You know I remember the the CEO Davis then was thinking about what the what ifs, um, and they were sort of reimagining or going through process. Uh, evaluation in terms of if something happened like COVID-19. But it's interesting because when he was doing that about four years ago, people thought he was crazy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the interesting thing is when this COVID-19 kicked in, Tesco had its supply chain processes down to a fine tune and they knew how they were going to move goods from you know the, the Far East right down to the shores of, of the UK. And clearly it took in reimagination of people, the process change, the, the staff within the various parts of the value chain mm -hmm. to be able to make this thing work. It. So no matter how much they simulated, what made it work was the people in the process. So I think back to your question, when you say, you know, what skills should we have? I think whatever we do, whether it's, you know, intelligent automation, artificial intelligence, robotic process automation, I mean, whatever the fancy words we want to use, there's still that important bit about how do we make people adopt these things? How do we make it work? So our skills, our core skills when it comes to real supply chain management is important. I mean, even now the impact of supply chain is very significant because back then, you know, we went through a process of, you know, just in time so that you're not having too much buffer stuff. But now we realize with the pandemic, some organizations struggled because the just in time doesn't work anymore so are you going to have things nearer sure. so reimagining supply chain has become something very important which is brought for all those people who have those skills that they're in demand now you know how are you sort of working with your um you know your whole procurement process in relation to from you know source to contract to procure to pay so it's interesting that um uh, when you look at those industries sort of performing within this COVID 19 it's everything around supply chain, the logistics companies, those who are able to sort of reimagine those processes. Um, you know, we're probably all not going shopping now, so a lot of delivery happening. How's the stock moving from one place to the other? But I think for me, you know, the, the, the most important thing is, is for people with those skills to sort of look at how these latest technologies can be used effectively as part of delivering the services they have. But I think those skills are still fundamental. And clearly those are some of the things that have been helping when you look at the logistics of, of trying to solve this whole COVID-19 thing. There's a huge underlying kind of supply chain management. Well, it's, it's nice to know, Francis, that some of those traditional skills are still valid and still important, even as we move quite heavily into the digital age. Um, I'm fascinated by this next question, so I'm hoping you can provide my listeners and me with some great insights. Um, what is the tech startup scene like in Nigeria? What um, non-profit bodies do you have working with the governments that's similar to, say, Digital Switzerland here, where they harness and support startups in various tech groups? I mean, you've talked about fintech, you've talked about mo mobile tech. Where are the investors? Um, obtained from in Nigeria, across the continent, blue chip corporations. Please give us sort of a, a sense of the, the ecosystem and, and what is happening in this space. Yeah, I mean, this, this is sort of interesting times um, and it's quite uh, fascinating that, you know, the tech space is really buzzing. Mm. I mean, the example I gave earlier on when I talked about space stack, I mean, it's made headlines, you know, globally, uh, the $200 million that uh, Stripe has invested um, um, sort of recently into um, uh, uh, Paystack. And it's quite interesting that the, the, the co-founder of, of Stripe, you know, a chap called Patrick Collison, mm -hmm. was saying, yeah, you know, I mean, he, he made a you know, very good quote, which sort of 
um, I sort of imbibe that, you know, Africa at the moment may sound like it's, it's, it's smaller in terms compared to other regions, but online is growing 30% year on year. I mean, the online shoppers are growing twice as fast as, you know, uh, compared to other areas as well, because, yeah. you know, there's a huge volume of people, number of people. Um, and, and so that investment they made um, wasn't a fluke. I think back in, um, I can't remember, I think about 2016, you know, Mark Zuckerberg visited, um, you know, Nigeria and he went to the tech hub. Um, a place called Yaba uh, in, in Lagos, which is what they call the, the Silicon Valley of Nigeria. And he was fascinated by the level of uh, tech entrepreneurship uh, and the energy. You see, the interesting thing now is um, coding and technology doesn't have to sit in a particular region. Um, people are going online and studying how to code it. It could be in a shack somewhere in the remotest part of, of the world. And they're able to develop code or write code, which is very relevant. You know, the advent of apps has created multiple entrepreneurs mm -hmm. across the globe. So you can realize that the technology is actually evening out um, this divide where that, you know, I can develop, you know, APIs, you know, somewhere in a remote island and it still could be relevant globally. Uh, there was an organization that was set up, and I think Zuckerberg invested in Andela, which was developing a, you know, a bank of coders uh, who were deployed to other parts of the world or could code for organizations in other parts of the world. So the tech sector is actually burgeoning. I mean, I think Nigeria has probably one of the highest number of, of youth population mm -hmm. who are very comfortable using the latest technology. So what is in is creating a buzz around um, technology. It's creating a huge, uh, um, you know, startup economy. Um, and it's quite interesting because innovation is kicked in in all, you know, shapes and form. And mm -hmm. some of this innovation was used during this COVID-19 um, uh, challenges where apps were developed to support the government in terms of communicating with people, getting announcements out informing people of where the, probably the next palliatives were. And that sector, yeah, you know, that tech sector actually played a part, a huge part, and continues to play a huge part. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so in relation to that, even the government, we're helping the government a lot with what we call government transformation and change, mm -hmm. where digitization is becoming a critical thing for them um, in order to manage, you know, look at the size of Nigeria, manage you know, the country. So even the government is, 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 is sort of pushing that. And so a lot of the international community are taking notice. And obviously, apart from it being a sizable market, also understanding that uh, it's important. The telecom companies, you know, huge company like MTN, for example, are making significant strides because what it is is they understood how the consumer behavior works and the consumer spend. And clearly at the moment, you're challenging in the banking system in terms of mobile money, where I can use, you know, have a, a mobile wallet on my phone and do my spend that way. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting um, that, you know, the tech sector is, is really becoming a powerhouse. There's clearly a good attention going on. And as I said, when Zuckerberg visited, you know, way back in 2016, he was really impressed. Um, with you know the you know, what is happening in terms of the tech sector, so I think it's it's encouraging. The good thing is you know you know companies like Microsoft with their cloud technologies allowing people not to invest in the infrastructure. I can code anywhere and and make it happen. So we are working with international organizations. I know we've done some work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, we're also working with the Danish Refugee Council and, and the likes of the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office from the UK as well, um, where financial inclusion and using technology is part of And these are some of these, what the donor agencies are doing that, you know, Africa is a power so you can get everybody included, everybody, you know, on, on, on the network. And that's why this tech hub is, is getting a lot of funding and attention. Mm -hmm. That those are probably the, the easiest ways we can reach, you know, the huge volume of large mass of people um, scattered across all areas. Um, 
So, yes, yeah, so it's interesting times. Um, you know, the donor agencies are looking at various ways. Uh, we're working with another organization called Athena, supported by the UK company, who is using technology as part of a way of engaging the pro-poor um, and uh, what we call the unbanked. And probably that's the only solution we think, or one of the most important solutions we think is probably the fastest way we can reach people and make sure they are part of the economy. And as a result, what it helps is it helps the government when it comes to taxation, because we're all part of the process. We're transacting electronically mm -hmm. so the government can effectively earn the necessary income to help develop you know, the country from an infrastructure point of view and sustainable in a sustainable way. So, so yes, back to, you know, some of the things you touched about, it's clearly uh, an exciting time um, with young creative minds. And, you know, the fascinating thing is these are young creative minds, um, you know, really making a difference. Um, I, I remember one of the, the famous Nigerian movies is, you know, is now being digitized so you can, you can purchase it online wherever you are. You, you don't have to go through Netflix. Actually, it's funny enough, it's even on Netflix now. Um, and these are taking young creative minds to reimagine um, how we take services to people. So it is a burgeoning industry. The tech sector is, is, is young, is vibrant, it's uh, and it's very encouraging. It's, growing. it's buzzing, it's growing, and you're getting a lot of corporate looking in that direction and perhaps collaborating with some of these small startups, some of these small tech organizations in Nigeria, I assume. Yes, you know, and you know, as I say, um, recent examples, it's, it's a sort of stripe, you know, and I think yeah. the last time I checked, they were worth about 36 billion and they are reaching out and they're not the only ones who are, who are taking advantage of this opportunity to say, we've got to go in there and invest. And with the African continental free trade happen as well, the only thing that is really going to make this sustainable is, is digital transformation. Yeah, because oh, well, that, that's not going to go away. So <laughs> I think exactly you can be quite exactly. happy with that. So that's exciting time. So it's something that um, we, the wider public, can look out for. What's going on in that space? That's great. And um, let's end on this question. Um, we've talked a lot about roles morphing in Head's talk. Um, let's look way ahead. Um, how do you see your your consulting and advisory role changing um not just because of digitalization but say in 10 years time or so where do you predict where one should uh, hang their hats on in terms of growing in the management consulting world you're a sort of a lifelong management consultant where do you see this morphing if at all um it's this is a very important question you ask and you know sometimes i wish i had a crystal ball because it's interesting, you know, I remember way back in my university days, we were talking about, and that's a long time ago, we were talking about AI. And I remember coding in, in prologue. I think that was the language then. Yes. We didn't believe it. We thought, nah, it's never going to happen. Um, and the, the interesting thing is, after so many years, you know, AI is, is just, you know, you can't even, you know, open your phone door without sort of smelling AI. And it's quite interesting because, you know, when I look at, you know, when we started in early days, you know, we're talking about ERPs, um, mm -hmm. and several packages, and then they went from that to, you know, SaaS, software as a service, because obviously the, the hardware was too expensive. So cloud computing kicked in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, you know, sometimes I reflect on that and say, what is it going to be in 10 years? You know, people are talking about automation, AI, uh, machines will be taking over our jobs yeah. it is because it's interesting because when i look at erp there's still elements of it it's just that we've moved the infrastructure to a different level because what it is is we want to make it easy for people to and remember the days you know going to even an upgrade of a system was quite an expensive venture mm. so the the spend is moved more to the value add so that I can concentrate on my business. So what does the, you know, the next 10 years look like for consultants? I mean, it's frightening because when I refer, you know, reflect back 20 years ago, you know, I probably want people to say, well, I've done that before. I've seen that before. I've heard that before. And it's happening now. So it's an important question. Um, 
Yeah, no, I think once upon a time, people said driverless cars is not going to happen. I saw a documentary which said that sort of idea started years ago. And it's just being more commercialized now. So I remember the days when the authorities said consulting firms should split from audit firms. And we thought that was going to be the end of management consulting. And you look at the big four, they've all got management consulting arms back again. Um, so, you know, what is 10 years going to be like? It's, it's kind of hard to predict. But, you know, I can confidently say the skills I gained over the years or 20 years are still relevant in terms of what I do today. Mm-hmm. The vehicle may have changed or the format may have changed, but those core skills have continued to serve me well and right. So, um, I don't think I have a fair answer for that one. Um, I, and I don't have a crystal ball and I wish I did. But what I know is, is um, um, that, you know, my skills are not redundant mm-hmm. in relation to the core skills I gained over the years. Uh, as, being a, as you said, a lifelong consultant. But I think what is going to happen in the next 10 years is there'll be more of what we're hearing today, which is artificial intelligence, you know, people having a good understanding and skills around that. A lot of automation. We're talking about robotics and process automation. Um, those are some of the core, you know, services that we're pushing, you know, forward as, as, as part of uh, thinking ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. But one important thing we've also been talking about is borderless office. Um, and I think COVID-19, as we said, actually made that more prevalent. That what does it mean? What does work mean going forward? And what does it mean to have a sustainable workforce? So irrespective of the services or products we may take to, to, to market, I think that big place, and actually our clients are actually looking forward to understand what we are doing in that space, because we're having to advise our clients that we are actually following protocols that makes our employees safe and secured. Um, and you know, it's not necessarily corporate responsibility, it's, it's a duty of care as an employer. So the next 10 years, I think, um, um, I wish I could give you a, a right answer. I could give you the textbook answer. Um, but I think, um, you know, we are open. And the most important thing is we're open for change. Mm. And, I, and I suspect that um, both you and I would have retired by then anyway. <laughs> so it may not affect us too much. <laughs> Well, I think we still have some energy left in the bones. So we, yeah, you know, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. making a difference. Yeah, okay. you know, actually, so, <laughs> so, Francis Buama, it's been a pleasure. Many thanks for your time and insights. Brilliant, Elaine. It's a pleasure speaking to you, and um, sadly, a lot of fond memories. But thank you for the opportunity. Thank you again. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.